What's happening, people? Thank you very much for downloading and pressing play on Season 2, Episode 2 of the Over the Hill podcast. Make sure you're following and subscribed on all of the platforms, all of the channels, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Google, TuneIn, CastBox, wherever you watch or listen to the episodes. Make sure you're following and subscribed so that you never miss a single one. Don't forget to get in touch with the show. Just send an email into theoverthehillpodcast at gmail.com. That's theoverthehillpodcast at gmail.com. I'm always on the lookout for potential special guests. So if you think you've got what it takes, if you've got an interesting story to tell, get in touch and let's see what happens. On today's show, my special guest is the one and only N Fostel, aka DJ Naughty, one of the pioneers of the UK funky scene. He tells his full story on here. It's an excellent episode, so turn it up and enjoy season two, episode two of the Over the Hill podcast with my special guest, N Fostel, aka DJ Naughty. You are now listening to the Over the Hill podcast. episode uh season two episode two of the over the hill podcast uh special guest today what name we going under um and for still dj naughty <laughs> nate <laughs> we, we, we'll go by nate first name basis yeah. but yeah and Fostel and um yeah uk funky producer and dj known uh, to the masses as dj naughty one of the pioneers of the scene and someone who had a couple of the biggest tracks out um in that whole genre which is you know mad in, in itself to say for any genre but let alone <laughs> something that was as big as that you know so um yeah mate welcome to the pod um how's life treating you in this uh supposed post-covid world yeah i'm all good uh, you know what throughout the whole covid um period well i'll say lockdown i was busy anyway i think i was more busier in the studio than ever so yeah, yeah, I, I can't really. I think a lot of people, a lot of people, um, have said the same thing. Just in terms of, you know, if you're working a day job or if you're always constantly doing bookings and stuff, it's. I think it's been beneficial for a lot of people to have the time to sit down and maybe finish off projects that they never really had time to, or even start new ones. And yeah, man, I think through through tragedy can come triumph for a lot of people, and I think it's good that some people have been able to turn it around. Um, Obviously, you go way back, so I suppose the only way to do this is to start at the very beginning. <laughs> we first met around probably 2007, 2008, when you jumped on Fat Beats, yeah. uh, but I'm assuming you were around for a little bit before then. How did you get into, you know, urban music, dance music? What were your early influences and, you know, how did the DJ and, and, and producing thing, you know, become a part of your life? Um, well, I got into music, I think, like how nearly everyone did Michael Jackson so <laughs> yeah I was listening to him a lot but I was listening to him in a different way to everybody else I was listening to more of the production behind him than um, his vocal talent and watching the experience of Michael Jackson dancing it was more the production behind him that I was very much more interested in and then I started getting into stuff like um Joel Deceive for the same reasons, not because of the singing, but because of the production behind and started learning about producers from um, the likes of Dr. Dre, Neptunes, uh, Teddy Riley, who else was there? Jimmy I mean, Jam and Lewis. Obviously, Lewis, so. behind Michael Jackson, the majority of the time, it was, it was Quincy Jones, like one of the best of all time. 
Yeah, Quincy Jones. When I got into Michael Jackson properly, though, it was like around the bad to dangerous era. So it was like Quincy Jones and Teddy Riley at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was very much into production from like a very, very young age. Um, and that's what really got me into um, music in general. And then with um, dance music, um, it was things like, say like Maloko, um, Spiller. I, I was listening to a lot of proper funky house at the time. Um, yeah. And Garage, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously the same era. A lot of people, when we talk about UK funky, which obviously we'll get onto, um, we original funky house was that, you know, Mojo, Spiller, Maloko, Groovetown. That's what we called funky house when we were younger. And then yeah, obviously yeah. UK funky become a different thing. And now I think people conflate the two, but yeah, no, it's a um, massive influential era for me as well. So uh, probably some of the earliest tracks I remember mixing were probably tracks like Mojo Lady and, and Spiller. Yeah. Um, a lot of my dad's old house records and stuff when he was DJing back in them times. So, yeah, good times all around. And some of the biggest hits, I mean, Spiller, I think Spiller was actually, if I remember this rightly, you might have seen this as well. I think Defected posted it on Instagram. Um, it's the first ever track downloaded and played on an iPod. Serious? Yep, Spiller Groove Jet, the, the first oh, ever. Oh, wow. Uh, Sophia Lispector on the vocals, mate. Apparently, I don't know, I saw Defected post something about it the other day, but I think it's the first ever track that was played on, on the original iPod. So moment of history there so um yeah yeah obviously being into that music um was it more were you more drawn to production or was, was DJ an early thing for you um I think I was a DJ first um I always like had a producer's mind like um I knew how to play keys and go on piano I knew how to play guitar as well and drums but um I didn't know my way around the DAW at the time. Yep. But um, once I started learning about DAW, I was in my teenagers. Teenagers, um, I, I learned quite fast. I was on like um, Cubase at the time. So, um, yeah. But I was a DJ first. I was always collecting records, going far and wide to get like the rarest tunes, or if I couldn't get it from a certain area. I'll be going like from North London to Croydon or be going to Uptown Records a lot. So, yeah. yeah. You have to do what you got to do to get to get like exclusives, white labels, anything. I remember when they yeah, first, yeah. like the first early times of actually being able to order stuff online and it be reliable. Like yeah. even that was just a crazy thing. Um, yeah, heading to Croydon, Big Apple, um, obviously DNR as well legendary shops that you know i think dnr have still got still got a shop an actual physical shop but yeah 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 so many famous places you know rhythm division and all these all these different kind of things um and as you say like uptown and different places like that it's crazy to think about what what once was but it's now just available (laughs) you know it's just available at the click of a button essentially obviously yeah yeah it's crazy like and the amount of money that we were spending going to the record shop like you buy something like 10 records you think that's a lot of money to buy now you're buying 10 tunes and it's just peanuts yeah it's the same it's the same as buying one record now essentially like, yeah 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 exactly exactly and that filters down to the artists are not getting paid as much but i'm sure we can waffle on about that a little bit later on um, <laughs> yeah so yeah early early dj and stuff were you getting like house party bookings and did you did you manage to jump on any radio shows or anything like that in your early days 
Yeah, um, my first booking was for Bob Geldof, actually. I was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crazy, isn't it? <laughs> so that was my first DJ booking. Um, it was from a friend of a friend. He saw me um, DJing at Record Shop, Planet Fat. I, I was doing like a little bit of work in there. Um, so I was mixing and a guy just came and said, ah, oh, like, um, I've got this bar and it's owned by myself and Bob Geldof. Um, would you want to play here? And I was 16 at the time. I wasn't even legal to go there. And I was like, yeah, sure. So went to his bar, played there. And yeah, everybody had a good time. Uh, but I was on Pirate Radio as well. Um, I went shortly after that, actually. I did Bob Geldof's um, bar before I did um, Pirate Radio. Um, shortly after that, I went on YTK at a show. Okay, because that was where was that? Was that based around locally around North London at the time? Yeah, yeah, Islington, around okay. that Finsbury Park area, Caledonian Road, and Holloway. Bloody hell, going way back in the day. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, in terms of, was it just mainly garage, or were you still playing a little bit of the house stuff as well? Because obviously, by that point, I mean, in terms of Pirate Radio, the the funky house stuff had kind of it was so so big by the end of the nineties, early two thousands. That yeah, yeah, you know, it, obviously, it was getting played in certain underground places, but the bigger sound at that time was still garage on Pirate Radio. Were you more on the garage side at this point? Yeah, I was on more of the garage side, but I was playing a lot of old school, so it was kind of like house and garage at the yeah. time so it was still like very 4-4 but to be honest even the sounds that I was playing like you could play it in house sets and they were house producers and they were on house labels so it was a lot of strictly rhythm songs yeah. so they'll still be classed as house but they'll be on garage sets yeah. and people call it garage yeah it's so, something yeah. I noticed I was watching I've mentioned it on the podcast a couple of times before but I was watching the um Rewind Forever garage documentary that it was on TV a few years back and I, actually the first song that plays in the background of the documentary was um, Hard Drive Deep Inside. And I remember watching it <laughs> thinking, yeah. what a way to start a documentary about UK Garage by playing a US house track that was like produced by fucking... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. But even that um, Buddha, um, that, uh, that Buddha song, yep. it's a house song, but people call it Garage. Uh, um, and Morel's groove as well. Yeah. Everyone will say it's garage. Yeah, blues, uh, blues for yeah, you. All like, of that early stuff was was definitely definitely house music. But you know, yeah, 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 house music. But yeah. So obviously, uh, that that US house and garage sound was a big thing for you. Um, any any favorite particulars that you'd like to pull out um, pull out of the bag on a regular occasion back in the day? Um, it's things that I still play now, actually, like um, brighter days. Um, I'll play um, Morel's Groove as well. Um, even um, Tough Jam just gets better. I'll class that as house. Yeah, so. it's, it, it is in a sense. I mean, I think the only real difference, and obviously being a producer, you'll probably understand what I'm saying, but I think the only real difference is is the actual bass lines, is the, the difference in... Um, the depth and the continuity of the bass lines, whereas in house music, especially, you know, in terms of that funky house, it was never really about, it, you know, you had drops, but the drop was never coming to like a massive bass line, whereas like something, yeah, like, something yeah. like just gets better. It's got that. 
like it's like the underlying sub bass that was more yeah driving the actual track as opposed to the chords and, and the glitz and the vocal and stuff yeah yeah but for me if Kerry Chanda plays it it's house <laughs> so when I <laughs> so when I heard him play it I was like yeah okay it's a house song now yeah music's music though I mean you can you can jump on I mean I'll, I'll jump on radio now and if I'm doing a set on my own then it tends to be one kind of thing but you know, sometimes you can just effortlessly float from from Soulful House to US Garage and be playing. You could be playing upfront Soulful House and be playing, uh, you know, something from Tough Jam even like within three or four tracks. You know, what I mean, if you know how to progress properly, then yeah, it is what it is. So, um, obviously, Y two K. How long were you on uh, Y two K for? I think just over two years. Okay, I was there, and then after I went to Touch FM. And while I was on touch, I was going on internet radio at the same time. So I went on Axe FM first. And then um, I think it was smoke, Smoking, Smoking from Fat Beats. He always um, used to listen to Axe FM. Okay. And he was like, yeah, um, I really like your style of DJing. Would you like to come on Fat Beats? So, yeah, that's where it all started. Bloody hell. So, yeah, that was around... So we're talking probably 2007, as I say, 2008, roughly them times, because that's when I was around there. And I remember you coming in. Um, obviously, at that time, you were hooked up with um, Heartless Crew as well. Um, yeah, did, yeah. Did that connection come from like the Y2K days or was that something that came along a little bit later? No, it came on, came before K2K. Bushkin, um, I, I knew Heartless when I was young as well. So... Bushkin took a liking to me um, when I was a teenager. Um, he heard one of my demos and it was him who got me on YTK in the first place. So, yeah, um, that's where it all started. But me really aligning myself with YTK, I mean, Heartless Crew was around 2006. Okay. So, yeah, and then after he took me out to Ayanapa in 2007. Bloody hell. <laughs> in at the deep end straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he said he was going to do. He's going to throw me in the deep end and yeah, see where where it sink, goes from there. Sink or swim in it. Like it, one, one or two things is going to happen, bro. It's going to go one way or the other. But so obviously around that time, the same time, the emergence of UK Funky happened. So you had, you know, some of, I think two of the earliest tunes that I always cite as being proper actual UK based UK Funky tracks because you had people were already playing some of the defected stuff, um, copyright and some of the, you know, like um, just them early, almost broken beat tracks as well. Bugs in the Attic had some stuff and like that, but it was never really classed as a separate genre. But then I remember two tracks kind of changed the game. One was um, Invasion Crew, Takeover. And then the other one for me was probably uh, NG and KEB or Baby KE, tell me that that was that track was yeah. ridiculously huge. And that was like, I remember hearing that in about end of 05, maybe. I'd have to talk to NG properly and, and confirm, but I think yeah, I remember yeah. hearing it around then. Um, for you, what was, you know, what was the process behind getting involved in that scene and what what drew you to it? And, you know, if you can, let's 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 break down the early tracks and let's break down quick time and and give us the full story on your involvement with the the early emergence of the scene. Yeah, well, um, prior to that, um, when I was on YTK, I started playing a bit of Soulful House and um, Funky House as well. So like the My, My, My is, um, Pressures, um, 
and it was Pioneer who got me into it. He's like, look, like I'm fed up of playing old school garage. Like we're always playing old school garage raves. We're always in the room too. Um, that let's start something new. Um, and I was like, all right, cool. I'll be up for that. So me and him used to do a lot of back-to-back sets on YTK, um, playing a lot of soulful and funky house. And some of them sounded quite Calypso-ish. And then Broken Beat came along as well at the same time. So we had Bugs in the Attic, um, co-op production stuff as well. And um, yeah, we're playing a lot of that stuff. Um, and slowly you started seeing people from like around our circle pl- playing the music as well. So Angie started playing it, the DJ Gregory's the 10 ones, um, the stuff by hard drive as well. And um, he wanted to make his own thing out of it. He was like saying, oh, you know what? I want to do a genre, a whole new genre where it's kind of like a fusion between house and funky, funky, no, funky house and garage, sorry. So we got um, Katie B, who was then Baby Katie, and Versatile on the track. So those times when you were hearing Soulful House and Funky House, you didn't really hear an MC. It was like, you might hear one on, say, a Basement Jacks um, track or a Groove Armada song, but it'll be in a certain style, if you know what I mean. Um, but NG wanted to make it more house, but with a garage twist, like make it very, very UK type because we we had MCs and hosts like on our sets, like Dog Tanyan, Spidey G, Gemini at the time. Um, but he wanted to bring through Versatile. And so he made um, Tell Me. For me, that was probably, you could say the first, like, official funky track yeah but um at the time no one really called it funky it, um it didn't have a name at that point but by default we called it funky because the ravers were raving to funky house funky and soulful house and people just for abbreviation purposes called um funky funky but for me the uh, um initial songs for Funky would be Apple's Dutty Dance that he did a dub plate for Super D on. Um, then, yeah, and Edgy Tell Me around the same period. I don't know which one came first um, and which one people listened to first, but it was those two. And then Invasion Crew came along and it had that garage edge. And like um, It was like, kind of like post-garage, really. Um, and when I came along just shortly after as a producer because as a DJ I already had made a name funny enough I was actually the first DJ to ever play Tell Me um, he gave it to me when I was playing it at Ministry of Sound and he was like yeah can you play this song for me and so I played it it didn't really get much of a reaction but I told him you know what it's a good song like I think it will do well you just have to um, push it out more and the way NG um, promoted that song was like how a promoter rave at the time. So he made mixed CDs. He was going out to clubs, handing CDs out all the time um, with, with the name of the song. And everybody started knowing about Tell Me After. Um, but when I came 
with QuickTime was just around that same period, just a little bit after. I actually made the song, but I didn't show it to anybody. But um, one day I went to Pioneer's house and Super D was there and I showed it to them um, together, like a few, a few tracks actually. And they were just like, yeah, this could run. Like They were just excited for that song. And Pioneer said, you know what? I think this tune is going to be a game changer for the scene. And yeah, he, he wasn't wrong. Yeah, crazy. Like the, the reaction it gets even to this day. Um, there's a couple remixes of it and that, that are decent, but that that original version, the first time I heard it, I was like, it was similar to the first time I hear like, um, you know, some of the Apple tracks or the first time yeah. I heard um, Tell Me or the first time, like it, it, QuickTime's one of them tracks that stands out as a seminal record for that scene. Yeah, I, I've told the story once or twice before on here of when I initially got sent a promo because I was already on Fat Beats and obviously we had a few connections and some of us were getting stuff sent through. So I initially got a promo of um, Do You Mind, which was obviously the first big one for for Crazy Cousins. And I remember playing it and it was months and months before it come out. Um, I remember playing it and um, because we had the garage mix as well and some people were playing like the baseline stuff at that time because obviously garage had kind of filtered off. But obviously I was a more of a soulful house DJ and hearing that I was like, right, this is soulful house, but with more of an edge. And yeah. then I remember playing it and I was battering it every week. Cause I had a residency in Enfield and I was like, let me play it. Cause it was quite a young crowd. If they like it, then, you know, it's going to do something. I ain't going to lie. Wasn't really doing anything. This was about springtime. Anyway, yeah. everyone goes away in the summer. They all go Malia, Cos, Zanti, Napa, wherever they've gone. So during that time, trying to DJ and have a residency in an area where you're relying on young people, 18 to 25 that have all got away for the summer. It was a nightmare, but loads more tunes started creeping through. And then by the time everyone come back, all I got asked for by the same people that hadn't danced to it when I played it before, all I got (laughs) asked for was, was do you mind? And then obviously off the back of that, everything else fell into place because by that point ma1 was coming with the bangers um you know you had tracks out roska started having stuff out it was like this explosion of i mean crazy cousins had a track out every fucking week at that point it was insane um what was that time like for you obviously being at the forefront of it having a name from north london pirate radio having a name from the association with obviously heartless crew and then obviously having your own stuff and still being, you know, fairly young in the scene at that point. How was that for you in terms of busyness and sort of handling where things had gone from zero to a hundred real quick? Um, yeah, for me, it, it was crazy. It was a very busy period where everything was just go, go, go. Like bookings here, there and everywhere. Um, I'll be playing three different cities in one night. So I'll be going Birmingham, Nottingham, then Bristol, um, just doing these crazy long drives. Um, There wasn't no stopping because um, with me as well, it was expected to have um, another big tune all the time. So me and Crazy Cousins in 2008, I think we actually held a cornerstone in Funky um, to the point where it's like you either hear a Crazy Cousin track or you hear a DJ Naughty track, a Crazy Cousin remix or a DJ Naughty remix. Like you didn't really hear much from 
other people until I'll say later 2008 2009 that's when more and more people started coming through like the ill blues yeah little silvers as well uh, and then yeah um but for me it was just a really busy period um I, I was the first one to get the remix by um, a major record label as well um and for tr- um, a track that was a remix to chart in funky that was for h2o so not my version charted but the original yeah. um charted um and from there i started getting a lot of um, major remixes to the point where i ended up telling the labels like look there's more than me um there's this group called K- crazy cousins a duo um flutes and pearl face and um i think you need to check them out so once i did that <laughs> they forgot about me and then <laughs> got them to do nearly everything after that but yeah it's all good man i'm happy for them yeah, it's something I was going to ask, actually, because I see it a lot of the time. Obviously, I've been around, um, you know, little backstory. You might not know. My dad was a DJ, so I was around from like very early age, seeing the inner workings of things. Um, obviously, knew quite a lot of artists and garage artists. They've been on a podcast, people that have grown up around. Um, and obviously done so much of radio and stuff for the last 16, 17 years myself. Um, I've been through a lot of scenes. I've been alongside people. I've seen politics. I've seen inner workings. And I've seen in certain scenes and industries um, or certain offshoots within our industry, there can be, it's not just like a healthy competition. It can be quite a bitchy place to be sometimes. Um, I was wondering, because I was never really too, too involved in the funky scene. Obviously, I had all the music, yeah. knew, knew quite a lot of the DJs. What was it like for you? Was there a sense of driving yourself to be better because you had not competition because you, you you were cool with them but competition from the likes of crazy cousins and and the other people that were coming up was it more of a sense of trying to push yourself to be better or did you ever feel that there was like a little bit of an undertone of people were kind of trying to give you the elbow a little bit and step on your toes no i, I didn't think anyone was trying to step on my toes like everyone seemed like they liked me and what i was doing and I, I wasn't in competition with anyone or everyone. Like, I was just doing my thing. Um, I, I was always quite, like, someone who's by themselves. Yeah. Like, I wasn't really mixing around with everyone. Um, but I was cool with everyone as well at the same time. No arguments, nothing like, yeah, I didn't really look at competition. Yeah. I, I'd rather just, like, work with them or push what they're pushing and all that kind of stuff because um yeah i did care about the scene and where people went like i wanted to see the people around me doing well yeah yeah no mate, mate it's the best way to be it's the best attitude to have um that scene was is it's funny i i was talking on a few episodes it was a while back now um about the parallels for me personally when i look at the scene of uk funky and i look at uk garage and you watch the progression that comes from you know those early few few tracks it has this massive boom everyone i mean you kind of alluded to yourself everyone sort of takes on the commercial remixes um it's everywhere it's charting if it's not the remix on the official like record that comes out it's the main track that comes out and it hits the charts itself um it's something that burnt very brightly, but it did burn out very quickly as well. It almost, 
left almost as quick as it went now it influenced yeah. a lot of other sounds i would say that the sounds that come afterwards like your red lights and and people like that who are making the hard stuff um and the future jungle sound i would say a lot of that was influenced by the uk funky and the little silvers and people like that um yeah. for you when things started to, to to die down and you know everything kind of kind of leveled out and and sort of you know died off a little bit what, what do you think that was? Do you think it just ran out of steam or do you think maybe we live in, in a time in the 2000s where we get rid of things as quickly as we took them on board? It's something, yeah. it's something that always really, you know, stuck with yeah. me because I was still playing UK Funky until, well, I still play it now, but it's like yeah, yeah. It, it it went. And when it went, fuck me, did it just go? I know we, we moved into the the deeper side of house and you know the the rinse fm sound and the the sort of the zinc type music and uh t williams deep technology all that kind of stuff sort of took on a new yeah. life and, and everything else was it just a, a natural evolution that meant it ended or do you think that it was only ever meant to last so long what's your thoughts on like i don't want to say the death of it because it sounds negative but what's your thoughts yeah on, like, yeah the, the sort no, of ending yeah, it was um, a natural evolution. Like sonically, the music was changing, the rays are changing. Um, you know, there was a little bit of stigma attached with names that people were booking. Like it's not the DJ's fault or the promoter's fault that that stigma attached to them. But yeah, yeah it was just events. But there were, there were so many things. There wasn't really much structure between everyone in the scene. Um, you know, like a lot of things happened organically, but it was a very young scene. The producers were very young. Like myself, Flukes, we just barely come out of our teens and um, Little Silver as well. So like the people who are making the music and the tunes that are big in the clubs, the people who are making it were at the bottom of the pecking order so um you have the pas top of the lineup they're they're the biggest thing um all they do is one track and they're they're charging the most out of everyone then you have djs um and on the flyer sometimes you have the mcs above djs it'll be like this dj with this mc um rather than you know the dj lineup and MC and a lot of DJs that were, well, a lot of producers that were DJs as well, weren't getting bookings or um, on the lineups with those names um, who are just DJs. So I think that was a big issue because um, at that point, a lot of the producers were getting disheartened thinking, you know what, we're making this music and we're getting nowhere. Um, I think only myself, Genius and Crazy Cousins were the ones who were um, getting loads and loads of bookings. Um, but Crazy Cousins are more in different lineups. And Genius here and there, but he, he didn't really care about that anyway because he had his empire in Rinse. But so I'll say more so um, just me really getting those bookings. And I, I could see it from the producers, they're getting annoyed. And then when they saw Roscar doing something, playing across the world, going Australia, doing US tours, um, Asia tours, 
those producers saw that light and thought, you know what, I'm on a piece of what Ross is doing. And then sonically, the sound started changing. Um, they wanted to uh, follow his formula. Um, whether it worked or not, I don't know. Um, but yeah, like they just didn't want to carry on doing what they were doing because they weren't really getting a look in really. They were being overlooked most of the time. So I think that was the start of something crumbling. Like I'm a big believer of nurturing and nourishing um, people, especially if you want them to grow and evolve with you. And if you want to evolve yourself, you need to look after the people surrounding you. And if that doesn't happen, it's not going to work. Yeah. You, um, you, you've got to water it. Do you know what I mean? At the end of the day, you just have to. Like, if you if you want it to grow, you've got to water it. It's as simple as that. And, yeah, it's just it's something I noticed. I mean, a lot of it was blamed on, like, the skank tunes because they kind of became the, the evil villain, if you like. I'm not going to lie. I yeah. wasn't. Aside from Migraine Skank, which is... It's it's a Kerry Chandler track and a and a little clip of House Hard House Band. Yeah, like, yeah, no, um, yeah, DJ Gregory, Gregory, <laughs> Gregory. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, is yeah. So apart from that, um, the rest of them, I I couldn't stomach myself, and I remember thinking to myself at the time as well, like, do you know what? That's probably gonna be the peak of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then so obviously that became the main villain, but I I just remember, um, you know, the music obviously did change, but yeah, for me, it just became a little bit like there seemed no direction, as you say. There was no real structure to anything. So it's, it's interesting to hear your thoughts on it because I think out of that, though, we, it kind of went into, at least some of the artists definitely went into, what then, you know, a year or so later became this huge scene that erupted out of London, um, East London more specifically, um, the the sort of deep tech London house sound um, that yeah. obviously, you know, Radford and Audio Rehab just shot out the blocks early doors. Yeah, yeah. And Usain bolted it as far as fast as they could, as far ahead as everyone yeah, else yeah, at yeah. the time. Um, so, you know, yeah, sound did evolve. But yeah, a lot of great artists um, just sort of cracked on making that kind of music. For yourself, um, obviously, you know, it w- you would have still carried on getting your bookings and whatnot afterwards, but did you have any sort of any sort of plan did you feel like you needed to take a break was there any sort of direction you particularly wanted to go in once once the funky thing once the flame kind of died a little bit yeah like do you know what even prior to that like um even before quick time i wanted to switch up but when quick time came um it was one of those things where i just started riding the wave um I couldn't stop at that time. It'd be I was, stupid like, not to. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Take that opportunity to 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 be where you were. Your brother, you're throwing money down a drain. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, I came that far just to stop. And I was like, all right, cool. Let me just carry on. Um, and when, you know what? For me, it didn't really slow down that much. I was getting the same bookings. It was just that things weren't progressing now. I was just staying the same. That I had that glass ceiling that I just couldn't break through. Mm. Um, so what ended up happening, I made a track called Baby um, as DJ Naughty, and I released it on Soul2, um, that's Pioneer's label. It was completely different to any other DJ Naughty track I did. I wanted to see the reaction, which was good, but 
um, it was something that I knew that was going to happen. People would, would like the song, but wouldn't like the name of the person who did it. So I thought to myself, okay, look, my sound is changing. Um, the funky people don't really like this song. They don't like how I've changed up. Um, and people don't like the name of the person making the song. So let me start doing N Fostel. Um, I wanted to do it for years. Um, and yeah, it's worked in my favor to change up as well. So obviously name change, style of music changed. Um, yeah. I started coming across your your stuff. I knew what you're doing because we've always been, you know, friends on Facebook and whatnot. But yeah, yeah. I really started paying attention to your stuff when you started um, releasing tracks with the Get Twisted guys and yeah. some, some of the early tracks you had with them. How did the, because obviously like Steph's been on the podcast Um how did the the link up between you and the Get Twisted guys, aka Steph and Alex, Tough Love? Um, how did that link up come between you guys? Funny enough, me and Steph knew of each other from Funky Days because he used to make Funky as well. Yeah, sick, and, sick uh, Funky as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we knew of each other. We hadn't met though. Um, and one of my friends, um, he used to do raves in Brighton. Um, and book like these massive names like from Justin Martin to MK um, and Hannah Wants. Um, and he booked Tough Love and um, he had to pick Stefan Al from a, I think hotel or airport. And um, they were speaking and my friend Nick, big up Nick um, from Love Beat, um, he must have said, um, yeah, I've got a friend. Um, and Fostel, he used to be DJ Naughty. Um, like he's got like all these decent house tunes you might like. And Steph was like, yeah, I know Naughty. Just tell him to send over um, the tracks and yeah, we'll see what we'll do. So I hollered that Steph on, um, on his email address. They sent the email address over to me and yeah, they signed um, the first N Fostel EP, um, Bad Habit EP. And then from there, I just gained a relationship with them. They looked after me well, actually. They um, booked me for their events, made me a resident for Get Twisted. Um, played that multiple times in um, Ministry of Sound as well with them. And I'm still very good friends with them now. So, yeah, man, it was a good relationship. Yeah, I remember coming to, I DJed at one of their events um, when they had Egg. And I can't remember, it was in the other room at the back. But it was when yeah, they yeah. turned, you remember they turned the garden into like an actual rave as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you were playing there that night and Blaze, I was talking to Blaze about this a while back. Um, <laughs> yeah, like them them get twisted parties where I mean, first of all, I did I did get twisted. Um, but like that wasn't the entire reason I enjoyed my night. I enjoyed the night because the vibe in there was just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Them yeah, guys, their their early parties. Much. I mean, I, I I haven't been out on a night out with them for ages, but um, but yeah, some of them early parties, the ones that that time that you was around them. Fucking hell, Jesus. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think for a house, I've, like, yeah, the Get Twisted ones are up there with one of my favourite ones. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so wh where did you go? Where did you sort of head to after that? Because for me, um, in terms of, like, full-time DJing and everything else, I've been out of the loop for a while and I've probably forgotten yeah. more than I can remember. Um, so I, I think we're talking, like, you know, 2014, 2015 times. Um, where did you where did you sort of head from there? So I stuck with Get Twisted for about two, three years. And then after I made a song with Natalie Wood called Circles, 
Um, and I showed it to Steph and Alex, and Alex um, came back to me. He said, this tune is probably the best song that you've made, but I think it needs a bigger home than Get Twisted. Um, I could try and A&R it for you, but I don't know who to give it to. Uh, so it was one of those um, tracks I kind of sat down for a while with. Uh, like, all he had was like, the original demo of it, because that's what I used to do with them. I always just send like, um, just little ideas and see what they thought and how I could change it up and what I can do. Um, so, yeah, I sent it to Alex, and he said he would A&R it for me. But literally the day after, I get a call saying that Telbo wants the song. And um, yeah, that I'll have a conversation with him. So I met him at his party and there was that saying there, yeah, he like he wants to sign um, Circles and on top of that, remix it as well. So yeah, ended up getting a few releases on the Idris Elba's label, um, Seven Wallace. Bro, do you know what? It's it's a mad thing for me to even like think about Stringer fucking Bell being <laughs> in house music, bro. <laughs> Lufa is producing house. Like, I can't. It, it's something that you know, like it doesn't. You know, it's nothing that I dislike or anything like. That. Some of his stuff's absolutely amazing, but it's crazy to me to hear to hear them link ups there. What was the process like working with working with someone on on that kind of level of fame? It's it's just bizarre to me. Yeah, do you know what? It was more hearing that he wanted to work with me. Like, I, I was I was baffled at first because I was like, I knew Idris did music, always into music, but I didn't know he was into house like that. And that was like everyone's response as well. And so, yeah, it was just crazy. I, I was like at a point um, thinking, where am I going to go from here? Like, Get Twisted said that I'm basically making music that they think deserves a bigger home, but doors aren't opening for me either. Um, so what do I do? Um, and just literally out of the blue that came, I just couldn't believe my luck. I was like, oh, everything to happen, Idris Elba's actually hollered at me and wants to work with me. And then even when we had the first phone call, he was just like, look, I really like your stuff. I think you can go very far. I think you can actually basically go mainstream. Um, and I want to be part of your journey. So, yeah, man, after big just up, man, he, he's helped me a lot. Like where he's put stuff in front of me, and um, you know, like certain songs, he's like had so much belief in that he's put it in front of major names, like massive names that I never thought I could possibly work with, um, and they've actually liked it, wanting to work with me. Some fell, fell through. But um, he, like the biggest person he's got to work with me other than himself is MK. So yeah, man, like I can't um, be more grateful um, for the stuff that he's done for me, man. What did you get up to with um, What did you get up to with MK? He he did a remix for me. Um, um, after all, um, it came out in two thousand and twenty. Featuring Amelia C. So I met MK before, um, but I had to remind him who I was. And he's like, oh my gosh, I did a remix for you. Yeah, man, like, big up. Um, but yeah, he did a remix. It was meant to actually be original, um, funny enough. It was meant to be a collaboration between me and MK. But um, at the time, Sony said that he was doing too many collaborations 
um, with this guy and that guy, they want him to do some stuff by himself at the moment. Um, so he's like, yeah, cool. Like, look, I'll just do it. Let's make it a remix. And so even that for me is a big look. Like how many people can say they got an, a remix from MK? <laughs> Bro, it's more time as people taking old acapellas or samples of MK, cutting them up and putting them on their own yeah, SoundCloud. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. To be able to have someone like on, on that level remix for you is, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. That's something that throughout an entire journey, no matter where you go or where you've come from, like that's obviously got to be a massive highlight for you. Um, you mentioned it there, like him talking about, um, you know, a particular big record label kind of sort of making him go in a, in a different direction or changing things and stuff like that. And other people that I've spoken to on the podcast have said similar things happen to them. Um, for yourself, the the higher up the ladder you've gone, um, when you're doing, even if it's just, you know, a, one job, like you've been commissioned to remix for this person or that person or whatever, um, how do you find that process? Is there is there ever been any times where it's been stifling or you, and you've not wanted to deal with them or um, has it largely been plain sailing? Have you gone through other people maybe to get, you know, things done? Um, because I'm just always interested in, yeah. you know, how the process is the higher I, I've never, Yeah, I've never had problems with labels, to be honest. I've had more problems with artists well, and management. promoters. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, promoters is one thing. That, that you know, I think... <laughs> You know what, with promoters, when people say like politics in the music scene, like, and they mention promoters, like, they don't know politics. Like, once you're writing contracts and, you know, talking percentages, that's when the politics come in. Like, dealing with promoters is just cowboy stuff. Like, yeah. you know, it's, you're just dealing with normal human beings now. When it's contracts, you're dealing with your life. That's actually politics because you know like when you're signing stuff you have to remember this is like your pension um this is not just a one-off thing where you could just walk away from someone and say i don't want to work with you no more this is like your product and you know it can affect other stuff in the future for you as well you, you don't know what you're signing and you could be signing your life away so yeah, yeah man like um Promoters definitely not politics. It's just cowboys. Yeah, you see it happen though at the highest level. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a far out example. But you look at someone like Taylor Swift. She's yeah, like yeah. she's now having to re-record her entire back catalogue because yeah, of yeah. a shit deal. Like because of someone essentially just owning you. Like it, it, it's yeah, it's yeah. Bad. So if you literally any young artist out there that might listen to this or watch this podcast, like always read the small print and get someone who knows what they're doing to read the small print as well because there are some dodgy like that you can't they're not even cowboys bruv they're phew, demons absolutely yeah 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 they're monsters like promoters are the cowboys yeah like when you're working with executives you're, you're working with monsters so they're people who just do not care about your life at all yeah so. there's a million and one examples of dodgy promoters out there and I guarantee you um, we could sit and do an entire podcast on, <laughs> on iffy promoters, but we are trying at least for season two, because we, <laughs> we called a few people out on season one, but um, at least for season two, we're trying to remain positive. So in terms of, you know, promotions and different club nights that you've played at and indeed, you know, any festivals and, and stuff, what have been some real highlights for you going all the way back to the, to the start until now? Um, playing in Germany, I think. Um, I was playing in Bremen. That was like 
wicked. It was like people who just didn't even know who I was. Um, yeah, that ended up starting to like me a lot and follow what I'm doing. They started following my my pages and wanting to see where, where I'm going and asking me back all the time. Um, Sweden was another one. It wasn't a packed event, but I started gaining a little bit of fan base. And the reason why I liked it out there, because I was in Gothenburg, and those posters of me absolutely everywhere. Like, I was just seeing my face. I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel famous. And it was one of those things where wherever I was walking, people were just, like, looking and, like, pointing kind of thing. Oh, he's the guy that came from UK and all that kind of thing. It was just, yeah, it was crazy. Even if they don't uh, know who you are. They're just yeah, like, they don't know who I was. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was literally that. Like, I was, I was waiting for an autograph signing and whatnot. Like, it was like that. All eyes on me. And I'll say Iron Upper as well, because um, when Heartless Crew brought me out there, it was a big game changer. I think all the bookings that have um, got gained me attention has meant more to me than, say, being on a massive lineup yeah. with big names. Because it, for me, it's like a catalyst of events happening from it. And I could actually pinpoint when things changed for me as well. Sick. Um, in terms of UK, um, I've been personally fortunate enough to play pretty much everywhere apart from uh, never got to play at Fabric and never played at 338. Apart from those two, I've pretty much played everywhere else. Um, I've got some personal favourites myself, but for you, in terms of UK clubs and London clubs, um, what's your favourite place like to, to, to throw down? Ministry of Sound, man. The sound in there is perfect. It is, isn't no. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's got the best sound, 100%. Yeah, it's absolutely sick. Even if the night's not that good, I will always enjoy going there because it's just, yeah, the actual sound in and of itself. And it, that, that main room is just, when it's on point, I've, I've been to some nights there where it's been a bit dead out, but when that main room is on point and it's a good, yeah. room, it's a good night, Jesus Jesus yeah, Christ. yeah, yeah. You, you can't fault it. Like it's the most popular club in the UK for a reason because of it. Um, yeah, the perfection behind it. It's so crystal clear. It's not even like loud as such. It's just crystal clear. Yeah. Perfect. It's exactly what you want. It's it's one of them places where if you can walk away from dancing near a speaker for the majority of the evening and not have ringing ears when you leave, then you know the system's been set up properly. You know. Yeah. 100% industry yeah. leading for a reason. Um, so yeah, obviously a, a seriously long time in the game already. Um, what's I've noticed, well, before we get on to the future, I've noticed that recently you um, jumped on a UK funky party. Um, yeah. It was like a sort of reunion thing. What was the deal with that? I meant to ask, I was chatting to MA1 a couple of nights ago and I meant to ask him about it, but it got late and they really get to finish the conversation. But what was the, what was the deal there? What was, um, who was behind that? And, you know, how did that feel to be back amongst pretty much everyone and doing a, a UK funky event again? Yeah, it was nice. Um, I think it was genius who thought about doing it. Like the kind of lineup it was, it was a genius like period if you know what I mean yeah um but yeah like they, they just hollered at me on Instagram and yeah I, I just said yeah cool I'll do it um I don't mind like it's a privilege to you know be asked to play for rinse I wasn't even on the station I only did like guest sets and 
whatnot. But um, yeah, it, it was nice to be asked to do it. It was a good event as well. It was quite vibesy from what I saw. Um, but yeah, um, like I, I didn't really get to see everyone that I wanted to see. But um, yeah, I have to give um, Rinse their props. Like they wanted to bring back something and introduce it to a younger generation that missed out on it. Yeah. Because. Um, even when I speak to the new generation of funky producers, they're telling me how they used to listen to me when they just started secondary school. I was like, wow, like, <laughs> I feel old now. Way to make you feel <laughs> old, for sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. And they're like, yeah, you're an OG in the game. I'm like, well, like, I didn't even think of it like that, that. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago when I was making those songs. So, But yeah, it, it was nice to meet um, a lot of the younger generation as well. And you know, for them to kind of experience what we saw. It might have not been exactly the same, but, you know, just have that little experience. Yeah, man. Dust, dusting off the headphones as DJ Naughty once again. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If, if it comes up again, is it something you'd like to continue doing, like the, the UK funky stuff? Yeah, I, I don't mind. Like, um, you know, if it's on demand, give the people what they want. Um, that's, that's all I'll do, man. Like, I wouldn't really say no to anyone. Like, if the money's right as well, I'll do it. Or if the event is good to do, then I'll do it. Yeah, it's got to be worth getting out of bed for. So, yeah, yeah. in in terms of um, current projects and and the immediate future moving into the new year, uh, what have you got going on? And uh, are you uh, playing out anywhere over the Christmas and New Year period? Um, I had a Christmas booking that just got (laughs) cancelled. I think it's like, political reasons but I won't say too much on here um also yeah that a lot of the events I'm doing now I'm doing a lot a lot of corporate stuff like it's kind of like where the money's at if you're not getting club bookings but from my understanding as well a lot of DJs aren't getting club bookings at the moment it's kind of hard you don't really see a DJ even a big name DJ getting free bookings in a month mm. Yeah, you're lucky to see that, unless if they're just like a superstar level. But um, or, or if they're local, if you know what I mean. But you don't really see a DJ yeah. here, there, and everywhere anymore. Um, yeah. Three times a month. But um, so I'll do like corporate events here and there. Um, but more time I'm in the studio making songs, and um, I'm just looking forward to my next few releases. Any uh, any insider info on to what expect from you production-wise in the next couple of weeks and months? Um, yeah, next few months. Well, I've got a release that just came out last month called Love Is Like, featuring uh, a young artist called Charmaine. Um, she's from Peterborough. Uh, she, she's amazing. Like, her songwriting skills, especially for a teenager, is up there. Um, and then... My next release is featuring a Canadian artist called Jenna Bonet. Like, she's starting to get her name out there. Like, she's a t- she's a so talented to the point where I would want her in the UK. Like, I think she's someone that I could work with on a consistent basis because she's not just got a, um, a musical musical talent. She's um, very good with her vision. She's like a video director at the same time. So 
you just don't see that in the UK, like someone who's directing their own videos and, you know, like bringing things alive. So yeah, man, um, I'm looking forward to the project coming out with her in the next few months. Sick. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously got into it with your career, spoke about, you know, how long you've been in the game and everything else. In terms of, you know, switching off and, and having a bit of you time, obviously I know you've got little ones and stuff and yeah. the, the life is obviously always going to be busy, but how do you like to to unwind and and you know maybe get away from music for a little bit? What what what, you, what are you interested in outside of you know just production and and DJing and stuff? Yeah, I've got uh, an expensive hobby buying fragrances all the time. <laughs> I did. Sure. I noticed that actually. I noticed you put up about the um the I don't know which Paul Gaultier. Yeah, because I I, I still to this day, bro, I still rock. The original. But I love it on the table just over there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not wearing it after this weekend, God. <laughs> <laughs> I got the like the 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 perform version. And even then it was just like, oh, nah, nah, I expect that. <laughs> but um so but, what uh, it was every, every time you went like, you know, obviously like not even chatting up women, but just like being no, next no. They could smell it. And yeah, like, yeah. They, they can come give me a hug and say, you give me memories <laughs> of my ex. Like, you're wearing Jopokote, aren't you? Like, I was like, oh, man. Yeah, you know what? Nah, you know, I can't wear this again. I really can't. <laughs> um, and, and it wasn't the OG version. It was the, like the new refined version. So I was yeah. like thinking, like, how? Like, I don't see the complete similarities. There's a difference, but... Yeah, they don't see it. They just smell that DNA and know it's that. But um, so yeah, I like um, fragrance collecting, and I'm I'm more of a series person as well. I like watching a lot of different series. So I would like watch a um, from a BMF to you know a Game of Thrones type of program, you know, just like what's ever popular. Yeah. And documentaries, but yeah, that's a very rare occasion, and you, because when I do that, uh, I just binge. Did you catch uh, Squid Game? Yeah, yeah, I caught Squid Game you quite read? early on that. I liked it. It was just good for watching. Like, you just didn't need to think too deep about stuff. It was just enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I was I was going to bring up something to be super cruel, but I'll bring it up just for the sake of conversation because we can roll a little bit longer. We've done just under an hour. So, yeah. Um, Saturday, I'm a Liverpool fan. <laughs> Where do you see, because I've seen big progress. I know you're a big Arsenal fan. Um, yeah. I've seen big progress in the last couple of weeks with with your team. Yeah. Um, are you Arteta out or are you still sticking with Arteta? Nah, I'm, I'm sticking in with him, man. Like, um, I don't believe in second managers just like that. I know I joke a lot about saying, yeah, I'm going PSG and whatnot. Like, I, I say those love moves, but at the end of the day, like, Arteta, I think he's got a really good plan. I think he's intelligent enough, assertive as well. Um, I think his um, player ID is one of the best in the Premiership. Like, you know, picking out players, because he's not picking out players for right now. He's picking out players for the future. And yeah. he wants those players to grow with the players he's already got. So, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I see a lot of promise in Arsenal. I mean, when I was watching the game the other day, um, I didn't watch it live. I had to watch it back because, um, yeah, yeah. For, for whatever reason, uh, I had a third COVID job on Friday, and my entire system decided to tell me to go straight to bed and not wake up until Sunday morning. So, uh-huh. um, <laughs> so yeah, I missed the game, but I rewatched it Sunday morning, and I noticed that like the first 
half hour or so, um, you lot were really keeping up with us. And I think, to be honest with you, like I know the scoreline was what it was, but you played us. That was at our absolute best, in my opinion. Like we we switched it on after that first thirty minutes. And when you're playing at Anfield against that team, like mm. it's very very difficult to not get overwhelmed. So, mm. but but in watching the first thirty minutes. You were keeping up with us. And there were times where you broke through our press and you could see that the chances are there. So I think in terms of progress, as much as I hate Arteta because he used to play for Everton, um, <laughs> I think he's probably the right man for you lot, to, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I can't, I can't really take too many positives out of that game, but we could just use it as a benchmark against Liverpool. When you think about this Liverpool squad at the moment, they're probably one of the best ever teams in Europe. Mm. Like the European football history, like they're up there with the Bayern Munichs when they had Robin and Ribery, the dominant Barcelona, the dominant Real Madrid. That this is Liverpool, even the dominant Man United. This this Liverpool squad at the moment is up there with them. Yeah, it, I, I'm never really a big fan of comparing anything past maybe three or four years ago because football evolves every couple of years. It changes so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think we've definitely, we could definitely say that we could hang with the majority of the best modern teams. Obviously, we've proven that. Um, yeah. Still, still areas to improve. But yeah, as I say, you know, you guys came up against that at Anfield. It, it all being fair, you could have come up against Watford at Vicarage Road and got your pants pulled down <laughs> like certain other yeah. men did. So <laughs> when you when you look at you know comparisons side by side on exactly the same day, you know, could always be worse. Yeah, it could always be worse. The who thing you, is... Um, who do you think United are going to get in, though? That's the big question for me. I think they're going to get Poch. Really? I think mean, he's the only person that really can work with them. But you know what? United will have to have a big change in structure as well. They're, you know, how they buy players, who they bring into the team from their youth academy. You know that football's changing now like you can't be just spending money all the time yeah. and thinking it's going to work because it doesn't That's no, the they've thing. got Cristiano and yeah. it's not happening I think he's probably caused more problems than he solved in all honesty um, it, with Poch the, the thing that's interesting for me about that is will he stay at PSG on what's clearly a ridiculous wage um, with the possibility of making history and being the first guy to win in the Champions League and stuff like that or does he go somewhere like United that you can't really say they need a rebuild because they've spent more on players than pretty much anyone else. Um, they've got the team there, but in terms of football and identity and actually the way they play, that's where they need a rebuild. Does he does he really leave the comfortable life for the struggle or does he stick it out at PSG and, and see what riches come his way? Because he's the kind of guy that he could win stuff at PSG and then end up at a Real Madrid or another massive team, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have to go mm. to United right now. And if he goes to United right now um, and he doesn't make it a success, could that hinder him? Um, I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think if he goes there, it will be possibly by next season. I don't think he'll go right away. I think Man United would just <laughs> have to do deal with interims. See Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Steve fucking Bruce. Imagine that. How, how the <laughs> mighty have fallen. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah it's him. sad to see, though, because... Nah, ain't. <laughs> you know, no, I'm going to tell you why. Like, I, I do like that specific competition. I like those teams that were there in the beginning 
that were playing really good football. They were dominant, like the Arsenal's, the Liverpool's. Well, Liverpool's in there now, but Man United. But now all of a sudden you've got these big rich teams coming in, like Man City. They didn't really build to that. They just kind of bought their way into it. Like you knew as soon as they got them big rich owners, they bought Rubinho right away and you knew what was going to happen. It was only a matter of time until they're going to be very dominant in the Premier League. And now that's going to be Newcastle. Yeah, so. that's it's interesting. I, I, I wonder how that's going to pan out. Um, because I know we've got FFP and stuff, but there's still, you know, there, there's going to be ways around where they can just spend at least 200 mil this season and then probably the same again next season. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd just be interesting to see if they stay up this season. Yeah, yeah. To, otherwise, you could be seeing Mbappe playing in a championship next season. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? What is with financial fair play? It means the money that's coming in, right? Yeah. So, you know, your revenue. And one thing about rich people, they always get rich people. They yeah. always attract more money regardless. So, yeah, they're, they're going to be all right. And Newcastle, they they've got a huge stadium and they sell out every week, you know. So it's not yeah. it's not beyond the realms of possibility for them to actually, you know, in some way turn around and say, well, we'll just spend all of the revenue, and then they've got rich owners to back it all up. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If they spend every penny that they earn, then if things go wrong, they can always they can always dip into the owner's pocket. I suppose. Yeah, who do you think is going to win the league this season? I can't see past Chelsea doing it. To be honest, um, I think. It's going to be a struggle. I mean, we've already kind of fallen off because we had the loss to West Ham and a draw, which is crazy because we've lost one game um, and Chelsea have lost one game as well. But we've had too many draws, I think, to catch them up. It will take a real dip from them for us to be able to catch. It's not in our hands, let's put it that way. Yeah, City are going to be there or thereabouts. But again, I, I, think, we, I think us and City are going to have to rely on Chelsea falling rather than us catching them because they're they're pulling they I think they're gonna to start to pull away and I think they'll start to pull away by mid to late January. I think us and City will struggle a little bit more. Um mm. we're not quite at our best. Our midfield depth isn't quite what it should be. Uh losing Wynaldum I think's hurt us a bit. Um and City for me City just don't look like I know they're still getting the results and they're still up there. So obviously they are still doing well, but there's, there's an edge to city. That's not quite there for me anymore. Yeah. No, Guerrero, man, they, they've lost the golden players that the companies, David Silva, the Guerreros, you know, when you lose that spine, you have to build it back up again and bring someone new. Who's going to be, you have to build a new spine now. Yeah. I think that, that's what happened to Arsenal. You take away your spine, you capitulate. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Interested times ahead. Um, also really interested to see what Steven Gerrard could do at Aston Villa. It's one of them things where I was talking to one of my managers at work and he's a big Liverpool fan. And I said to him, I said, it's a risk, you know, and similar to what I say about Pochettino. If Pochettino goes to Man United and it flops, it's career damaging for him. If Gerrard goes to Villa and it flops, he might never get the job that he really wants, which we all know is the Liverpool job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he stuck it out of Rangers, won a three more league titles, came to Liverpool, stayed there for three years. If he flopped, we'd forgive him and he could leave and walk away, knowing that he tried. But I think that if he doesn't do well at Villa, which I hope he does, but if he doesn't do well there, then 
it could damage his reputation in terms of being able to take the Liverpool job. So I wish him well, because I'd love to see him, you know, come in after Klopp and stuff. But yeah. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be very good for him to go to Liverpool. Like even as a, you know, I'm a football fan first. So I would love to see Gerard at Liverpool. Like he, he was just, for me, Mr. Liverpool mm. um, for the, like, the last, what? Well, for this generation, Premier League um, times, yeah, he's Mr. Liverpool for me. Man. I, I want to see him at Liverpool as a manager. I, it's always nice to see that kind of stuff. I just worry that, you know, I think the Chelsea job was too early for Lampard. Um, and I think, you know, obviously Gerard wouldn't come to Liverpool for another couple of years at least because Klopp's still there for another few years and, and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, I just, I do, I'm a little bit wary about these former stars, shall we say, going to their, their main club and becoming manager and not doing anything. Case in point, obviously, Oli's been sacked. But <laughs> in, re- in real talk, though, I love how United fans go on like this guy is their best ever player. He was a he was like a fourth choice striker them times. Like yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah so yeah. you know, it's literally like pff, fucking hell. It's it's not even close. He's not even up there like that. Do you know what I mean? In terms of great Man United players. So these people that are like throwing their toys out the prime and crying over what a fucking legend he was, like he stuck his mm-hmm. leg out, like he stuck his leg out and scored a goal in the Champions League. Like, all right, it's cool, but is he really like one of the best of Man United's all times? No. No, he's just like one of those um Mavericks, isn't it? He's yeah. a Man United Maverick, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Um, rightly deserves his place in history, but yeah, I, I, I don't see where the hell he goes at this point. Like, I don't know. <laughs> He's probably just going to have yeah. to go back to Norway and chill for about two, three years. <laughs> you know what? I like him, though. He's a nice character. Yeah. I think as a coach, he wasn't as bad as people were saying. Like, I think, yeah, there wasn't much identity at Man United, but, you know... He, he was get he got Champions League football two seasons in a row. He took them to Europa final. Like um, we haven't even gone halfway through the season yet. Man. You never know what can happen. Um, so yeah, I don't know, man. I think media plays a big part of a manager getting sacked anyway, and social media. Like everyone's got a voice, and you know it just makes everything much more tense. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's a major difference now compared to what it once was. Um, yeah, social media as well, and yeah, I think um, I think the, the worst person who's who suffered out of all of this is Gary Neville because he's just getting hammered from all directions at the minute. So. You know what? He's my favorite pundit, though. I like he, him. I hate yeah, Man yeah. United, but I like Gary Neville. I think. He's <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what? I, I, at first, the pundit that I didn't really like was Michael Owen, mm. but when he dissects how teams play, I think he's the best at it. Yeah. He really dis- he really knows the game like properly. Like, he sees things that other people don't. His punditry is very good, but when they stick him on commentary, it's unbearable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what about you? Who do you reckon's taking the Premier League this year? I think Chelsea. Mm. Uh, um, but yeah, they're just so well drilled, man. He's made Chelsea look like Bayern Munich, really. So, yeah, I think I think they could go all the way. Completely solid at the back. Well, um, mate, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, and yeah, hearing your story. Too, and, um, 
yeah, a little bit of football talk at the end there because uh, 90% of my listeners, according to my Spotify stats, are guys. So I'm sure <laughs> it, won't, it won't be too boring for people at the end of the podcast there. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. La- ladies, if you're not into football, we apologise. I know you're here for the music and um, the aftershave. So um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the rest of the show. But mate, yeah, once again, thank you very much for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you, where can they do so? And where can they hit you up on the socials? Uh, yeah, all my socials are Enfostel Music. So, yeah, hit me up there. Super. Right. Season two, episode two of the Over the Hill podcast of M. Fostel, a.k.a. DJ Naughty, a.k.a. Nate, a.k.a. <laughs> the Aftershave Collector. Um, <laughs> we'll be back on episode three. Thank you guys very much for locking in. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, share the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, the Over the Hill podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you're a future guest make sure you hit me up or a potential future guest make sure you hit me up if you've got a story to tell and I've not reached out to you yet um, I don't want to reveal too much but I've got some wicked guests lined up for the rest of the season so stay tuned for that and yeah once again big up man like M. Fostel we're out <laughs>